All right, so one of our teens, so we've had several teens come to the youth group that um, go for the scholarships at uh, the Jim and, Jim and Mineral Club. And this year it is, uh, one of them is Carl. And Carl works with the youth. He's been working for the, with us for several years. Um, and he just graduated. So now he's going off and, you know, wanting to do college and everything. And so he asked me to write him a recommendation letter for this. And so I saw his mom yesterday and she thanked me for doing it. And I said, yeah, I had, to, I had to make up a lot of lies to make sure I could make it sound good. <laughs> and so, no, it's one of my, it's one of the, my favorite things is to write um, letters for teens at the last minute when they forgot that they needed it done. So, so, but, um, so I want to, I like to share some personal stuff from my life. Uh, I like to share these stories because one, I know them really well, and two, um, you can feel better about yourself afterward. Um, and so, this is my daughter. Shh. All right. Uh, she's a commentary the whole time. Like, um, ever been to a comedy club and they just hecklers? All right. Anyways, so... Um, I've, I've shared with you before that I was a, a pitcher. I played baseball since I was uh, five years old, and I've been pitching since I was eight. Um, and I'm not being bragging. Um, I was the best pitcher in my area. No, seriously. So I'm, I'm being totally just honest. Okay. So in my area, I was the best pitcher. Um, and if not the best pitcher in the county, at least the second best. Um, and so we would, you know, I'd play on different teams and everything and do tournaments and all this stuff. Um, but my last year of senior Little League, um, I was 15 years old and they were deciding on teams and my dad would always coach. And so he always liked to take all the kids, all the brand new kids. Um, all the ones that didn't really know how to play and put them on a team. And then because he liked, that was his favorite thing is to take those that didn't know and to help them learn. And so guess what? I had to always go on my dad's team. And so I was always surrounded by people that didn't know what they were doing. Um, this time, this particular year, I had two other friends, really good friends of mine. They were probably, they were good players, but they were in the top 10. Um, but so we would have another team in town, and they had all the really, really good players. And so when we always played them, of course, we'd usually lose. Um, but we were third in our league that year, and we had a good time. But the first game of the season, um, I was pitching, and this I'm going to explain this whole game to you, okay, because this whole game is a part of the story. So we get out there, and we're playing this team. I don't know. I think they were from this place called Pine Grove or something like that, um, and get up there, first batter struck out, second batter struck out, okay, I'm pitching by the way, so I'm not striking out, I would do that, but I'm not, because I'm not a hitter, um, anyways, so third guy gets up there, and I don't know how he hit this ball, it was um, a high fastball, and this guy just, like, swung, you know, I guess he's right-handed, so he'd swing this way, um, and it popped up, and in all my years of playing baseball, okay, I see the pop-up, and it's a fly ball, easy out, right? I start walking off the field, <laughs> because it's an easy out, and so I start walking off, and then, apparently, it was dropped. Now, it was dropped by this kid, it was his first year playing any sport, Okay. He was one of those kids that didn't get out, liked it. He was very introverted, uh, a bookworm type of, type of kid. Um, and his dad made him play this year. Okay, so this is senior little league. You know, this is right before you go into high school. Um, so all these kids have been playing for years. And this dad wanted his son to play because the dad was a real, like, guy's guy. You know, he went out. He was um, ex-army uh, and, you know, big old guy. He was like 6'3", looked like an ox. I mean, just a huge built guy. And he was, a, like, would go out and hike and do all these different things. And so he wanted his son to do that. Well, his son wasn't really coordinated. 
You know, he tripped on his own feet. And so he missed the ball. And this is nothing on him. His story actually turns out really well. He became a really good friend. Um, we helped him through it. He enjoyed himself, never played another game in his life. I mean, another season, but he had a good time, and that's all we cared about um, at the end. Not me. Everyone else did. I wanted to win. Um, and so he dropped it, and, you know, I'm just, walk, like, oblivious to everything. I'm just walking back, and my dad goes, turn around, you know, look. And so I looked, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And it was at that moment, so the guy gets a second, it was at that moment I came to this realization, I am not going to trust this team at all the rest of the season. So I started just playing, you know, so the next guy got up there, struck him out. For the next five innings, that's all I did. I struck every single one of those players out, those batters out. And so we get to the seventh inning. Um, It's a home game, so we're hitting at the bottom of the inning. And so they get up, struck a guy out. Now, you have to understand, I'm about 100 pitches into this, okay? So this is, if you've ever pitched, 100's a lot, okay? So we get into, uh, I'm coming up to 100. I'm like an 89, so I'm right at 90. So this is going to put me real close, depending on how it all goes. First batter gets up, strike him out. Second batter out, up, I walk. So already I'm furious at myself for doing this. Next batter gets up, struck him out. Fourth batter now, I walk him. So we got first and second. We're only up by one run at this point. Okay, so this is now it's getting kind of dicey, and I, I'm getting frustrated. My dad comes out, because he's my coach, he comes out, and you have to understand, at this point in my life, I don't like people, um, and I don't like my dad coming out to talk to me. I never, I've never liked a coach coming out to talk to me, because you know what that means? You're probably getting taken out, and I don't like that because I like to finish things. And so he comes out to me and says, look, you only have one out left. We need to get this next guy. And my buddy who was playing third base, now this, is, this really annoyed me. He comes up, and he wants to chime in. And I'm thinking, dude, I'll knock you on your butt. Just get away from me. And he goes, hey, man, we've been just kicking dirt here for the last hour. We'll, we got your back. Okay? We have your back. And so my dad says, yeah, give him, just throw a low fastball, let him hit a grounder, let, let's get out of this and be done. So begrudgingly, I go, okay, I'll do this. So I get up there, I throw a low fastball. Somehow, this guy must have been a golfer because he just, <laughs> and it goes up in the air. And my thought again is, pop up, we're done, this is it. Guess where it goes? Same exact place, same exact thing happens. The ball falls, two of the guys score, and now we're down by one. I was furious. I struck the next guy out. We ended up losing that first game. I, and so from then on, I learned a valuable life lesson. Never trust your team. <laughs> and I actually had that sentiment all the way until my college years when I played um, until really at the end of my freshman year. And I was pitching again and, you know, just going at it, doing my thing. And we get into the situation, and it's getting bad. My, my arm's tired. By this time in my, my career, I have already hurt my arm once. Um, and so I don't want to do it again. And so they're, they're keeping me under 80 pitches is the thing. Um, and so... I'm getting close to that, and we're, we're having a bad game. Or, and it's a good game, but it's starting to turn. And so my buddy, who was my roommate at the time, comes up, um, and he says, look, trust us. Trust your team. We'll help you out. You know what I'm thinking? <laughs> You're going to mess this up. And I said, fine, I'll do it. Low fastball. This time, inside, not down the plate. Hits to the shortstop. We get the out. We get out of the inning. We ended up winning that game. But it was this, this idea, and I had it in my mind for years. 
you guys are not as good as me, therefore, I have to do all of it. And it hurt, like it physically hurt me to do it because I would, I would stay in and I would go through, I would, at one point I was throwing like 120 to 130 pitches and it was just killing my arm to do this because I would not back down from my coaches. Um, I had a very obstinate personality back then. Um, You've been talking to my wife? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, but it was, I, and it was at that moment I learned when I got into college and I started, you know, being with these other players who were actually a lot better than I was, um, that I realized I've been working so hard to be carrying everything that I haven't really grown as a, as a player. And it wasn't until after I gave that up I actually learned all the positions of the, the field. Um, I started trusting my team. I won more, and I had to pitch less. And so it was at that moment I realized, man, I really just need to start trusting my team. And I could have trusted that team. The problem was it was that one kid, first time out there, you know, and I didn't give him any grace. It was, you need to be as good as I am. And so, and that's what we're kind of be talking about today is this idea of when you trust in your strengths to the point where you are just, it's all about that, it's at the detriment to everything else. It's a detriment to yourself and the people around you. And so if you have your uh, Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be finishing off these seven churches that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And as we open up to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to, um, chapter 3, chapter, uh, verse 7, um, we're going to kind of just go back over what we've been talking about for the last uh, several weeks. And so in the first week, we started this, this series that we're calling Outlook because in our relationship with God, there's two aspects to that relationship. There is the love God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we talk a lot about the loving God um, with everything. And so we're focusing on these weeks on the loving our neighbors as ourselves, And so as we're going through this, um, we've been talking about, okay, how do we do that, right? And there's a lot of ways we can love our neighbors ourselves. There's, there's things like uh, getting a glass of water, getting coke, getting, you know, um, uh, sleeping bags, stuff like that. There's taking care of the physical needs. But the greatest thing that we can do is to share the gospel because the physical needs are finite. They're just for a little bit. But the gospel gives the need of eternity. And so we, we need to do both. We need to take care of the physical needs, but we need to share the gospel. And if we're not sharing the gospel, then we're not actually loving God with everything. What we're doing is we're doing some of it, but if God says love your neighbor as yourself and we're not sharing the gospel, we're still not loving God with everything. And so we put it to the detriment of that relationship. And so... That's what we talked about the first week. But also, we started, talking about, um, we started talking about what should motivate us, right? What should motivate us to share the gospel? And we started looking at chapter 1, and we started talking about the holiness of God. That when we put into perspective who God is, that He is a holy God, and we realize who we are in relationship to that, that as believers, we can come into the presence of God, yet His holiness is still overwhelming. And we saw this with Isaiah, and we saw this with John. It was so overwhelming that John says, I fell to the ground as if dead. I mean, that's the holiness of God. And so when we understand them, put ourselves in perspective, then we could start understanding, what about the person that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior? If we can come into the presence of God and still be overwhelmed, what about the person that doesn't know Him? And so, places like Matthew 24 through 25, the rest of Revelation, this idea of at that moment where Christ is going to be revealed to the world and we stand before all humanity stands in front of in judgment, there will be some that he says, come to paradise with me, to, to eternity, and to the rest it's depart from me. And on that day, I don't want to be one of the people that sees someone I knew and goes, I never share the gospel with that person. And there they go walking off. Now, I know it's their decision, 
but I don't want to be the one that said I could have, you know? And so that's what we're talking about is the holiness of God. And when we understand that, that motivates us to, I need to share the gospel with people. Okay, so we talked about that in the first week. The second week we had a guest speaker, and this is the way God works. Um, uh, uh, Doug shared with us about endure, uh, the things we go through, um, enduring the things that God brings into our lives, and how we can experience it, God's grace through that. And that's really important because the rest of the, what we're talking about is dealing with those experiences, dealing with those situations where we've got to endure. And it's an encouragement that when we do those, when we go into those situations, God's grace will be there. And what's great about it is God's grace isn't just when you accepted Jesus, now your sins are forgiven. That's a monumental aspect of it. But that grace continues. And it's not you're, you're saved and God's saying, I'll see you in 20, 30 years, 40 years when you die. Okay? No, it's grace for today. And it's in every situation that we can experience the eternal grace of God every single day. And this is what he, he offers to us. And that's, that to me just blows my mind that the eternal God says, you know what, I want a relationship with you in your finite days. I want to be right there. And that's just, that's just amazing to me. So that's just a side note. Anyways, so we talked about that. In the third week, we started going through all the churches, and we saw that the idea of trials and tribulations, these things that um, we're going to be going through, are guaranteed for us, right? That these things will happen. And so we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for that. Um, and so what's great about that is they already told you, or God has already told you what to expect, right? You know, one of the things I always hated is when someone would say, uh, a perfect example of this is when someone calls you and says, are you busy? <laughs> right? That's a loaded question right there. Yeah, because you know what that means? I have a job for you. And so I always answer the question, what do you want? Because that's a loaded question, right? And so the reason is because People want to make sure that you're free so they can get you to do something, right? No one ever calls and goes, hey, I got a flat tire, come get me. They, they always go, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> right? They want to impose themselves, right? I do it to people. I mean, we all do it. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Um, because then it's like, oh, I'm not doing anything. Perfect. <laughs> then I know you don't have an excuse, Right? But God gives it to us at the beginning. He says, look, you will have trials. You will have these tribulations. These things will come into your life. And so when they come, our reaction should be, I expected it. Right? It's not, man, why is this happening to me? No, it's, it's an expectation of problem. Right? And so that means that then we can rejoice. And so we talked about this. Um, and so we talked about how we just need to expect it. They're going to come. And the, if, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're already in a position of going against the world because God has brought you out of it. But when you start engaging in the gospel work on an active basis, now you're really you're on the field playing the game. Right? You are now a target to be tackled. And so we talked about that. And then last week we talked about uh, three churches. I know we went long for there. Um, and we talked about the, the trap, right? That as we engage in this gospel work, we will f there will be opportunities to fall into this trap where we wink at sin so that we could be more tolerant, so that we can be more accepted by the world. Where we'll say, okay, well, I guess you don't need... That's not a problem, right? And in reality, it, it is. And so we can't wicked sin in our own lives. We can't wicked sin um, in the church life. And we can't wicked sin when sharing the gospel. And so all sin we need to bring before the throne of God and say, God, I know you paid for this on the cross, but let's deal with it here too right now. So it's, we can't wink at sin, especially at the praise, so that we can be more people like us. Because what that ends up doing is it waters down the gospel. It makes the gospel not as important. And we have to take sin seriously. Sin has to be taken seriously for the gospel to be the good news that it is. Okay? So we talked about that. And so to this week, we're going to talk about this weakness and this strength. So 
we're going to be Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And as we've been doing through this whole thing, we're going to read through to, uh, to verse 22. And then, then we'll, we'll break it down. All right, here we go. So to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I see, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of the trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God on the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I console you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salt to put your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his phone, throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. So there's a lot going on there, and there is a lot of imagery that goes in there, and a lot of... Um, future stuff that is going there as well. But what we're focusing on in this particular series is what is the church going through and what God is speaking to them in this moment. All right? So in this moment, let's talk about Philadelphia. Because we'll get to Laodicea, because everyone likes to bash Laodicea. So, but we'll start with Philadelphia, and then we'll get to them. Okay? So Philadelphia is, let's understand the city itself. So Philadelphia is a hub city. This means that it is on a central location between two roads that are major thoroughfares, okay? It's kind of like Quartzsite, okay? I mean, think about it. You have 95, which is a northern Rome from Mexico all the way up, and then you have I-10, right? And we are a hub for a lot of traffic, a lot of commerce. And so... This is what Philadelphia is. You have Ephesus to the west and north. And if you want to get to Ephesus, you had to go through Philadelphia. And then you have Pergama off to the um, east. And if you want to get to Pergama, you have to go through Ephesus. So you had to go through these, to get to these major important cities, you had to go through Philadelphia. And so Philadelphia became the hub. And so it got a nickname. And that nickname was The Gate. Or the door. And so it makes sense then when Jesus brings up that he has the keys to a gate. It would click automatically with the Christians in the church about the gate. And then it would bring to mind John 10. And John 10, 9 says this. This is Jesus. This is one of the I am passages. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And so this, these ideas of both the physical and the spiritual are being brought together for Jesus as he talks to the Philadelphian Christians. And they understand it. They understand what's going on. Okay? And so when they hear this, they go, okay, Jesus is the gate. Just like we're the gate to something better. Jesus is the gate to something better, right? He's the salvation. He's one. And so Jesus is saying, understand this, right? So this is what he first um, has for them to understand. 
But then there's more to it. And it's, it's this. So we go back we're on chapter 3. And we come back here. And he says, I know your deeds. Oh, sorry, wrong one. He says, what he opens up, he cannot say. He says, verse 8, I know your deeds. I see, see, I have placed before you an open door and no one can shut it. He's, this is something that, look, no one has a right to this, right? No one can just come along and do whatever they want. Only Jesus. This is Jesus' authority. He says, I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so what's really interesting right there is the word strength. And the word strength um, carries with it two connotations, either strength as in miraculous power. And so if you have an ESV, they're going to translate that as power. Or it is physical power. It's one or the other. And this word is used multiple times in multiple situations differently either in the miraculous or in the physical. And so the question is, is what is what's being used here? So the ESV translates this as power, but the NIV translates this as strength. And both have a different connotation, right? And so what is it? And I think what we need to know is that I believe it's physical strength, and this is the reason why. Because he says, I know you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied it. If they didn't have miraculous power... That would be a faith issue, right? That would be, be a problem that they would have, right? If they weren't seeing the power of God actually work itself out, then there would be a problem with that. But instead, Jesus says, no, you've kept it, right? You've kept, he says, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. These people are right on. And this is why Philadelphia always gets all the, like, this is the best church, right? They don't have anything wrong with them. Except they don't have a lot of strength. And I think the reason why is because they're dealing with what he says. He talks about the synagogue of Satan, these Jews that are probably like Paul. They're probably going after these Christians and, and saying, you're blasphemous, you're you know, uh, kind of like Sardis. In fact, Sardis and uh, Philadelphia are actually pretty parallel with each other and what they're dealing with and who they're dealing with. And Jesus is saying, look, I see your little strength. These are people that probably have gone through and, you know, they've dealt with a lot. This is that endurance situation that we talked about before. And so what does Jesus says? He says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Who does that? Who, who has the power to make these people acknowledge that Jesus loves this church? It's Jesus, Right? It's not the church themselves. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, go out, buff yourselves up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and go make these people bow down to you. No, this is Jesus' strength. This is Jesus will do this. And then, as we come down, and we start looking, this is, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave, leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. What's important about that is Jesus is, again, commenting on the history of Philadelphia. Philadelphia in AD 70 had this huge... Um, earthquake. And the reason why is because they're in a volcanic area, and so they have a rich soil, but they fill these tremors a lot. And in AD 70, they had this huge one that destroyed Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And that's important for Laodicea, and we'll come back in a little bit. But it destroyed these cities, and then the Roman government came in and rebuilt two of them. They rebuilt Sardis, and they rebuilt um, Philadelphia. Hi. Anyways, um, so they rebuilt these cities. And so what does Jesus say? He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. When you hear pillar, what do you hear? Strength, right? Support. Staying power. Jesus is saying you won't be shaken. Because remember, they're, they're filling all these different earthquakes. Follow this, the new Jerusalem. 
This is a dig at the Roman government. This is who, who built Philadelphia. The Romans did. You know what they called it? Neo-Caesarea. It was to honor the Caesars. It's a new city that would honor the Caesars. And so it, was, it played into eventually this imperial Roman cult of worshiping the, the, the Caesar as we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And so the whole idea here is just saying, no, I will build it's my city that you need to worry about. The city I built, the one I'll bring down. And so all of it is wrapped up in this understanding of, look, be encouraged, you have little faith, but who are you following? Who are you relying on? Are you going through the gate? Are you overcoming? Are you focusing on me? Don't worry about these other people. Don't worry about what they're doing. I will deal with that. What is your job? It's to be faithful and follow. And so it's really encouraging, right? Because it takes a lot of burden off us. And it says, okay, uh, you got it. It's yours. All right. Now let's, let's beat up on Laodicea because everyone likes to do it. Okay? So now we come to Laodicea. And just from the get-go, we have this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This really, Jesus is really hammering this idea that I am the judge, I am the king, I am, you know, because he has this, the amen, the let it be. So this is finality type stuff. This is the faithful and true witness. This is judgment. I will, that he's true, that his, his witness is true. And then he says, the ruler of God's creation, he is the judge. He's the one that decides. He's in control here. And the reason why he does this is because what's coming next. There is a, a judgment. He's going to come hard against them. He says, I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one of uh, either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So we need to understand, again, the place of Laodicea. So Laodicea, it's a city, and then it's not known for really good water. Okay, um, There are these two other cities. One's Heropolis, and the other one's Colossea. Um, and they are, Heropolis was known for their, uh, their sulfur springs, hot water springs. And people would come all from all over the, the, what's it called, the empire and sit in these springs because they were supposed to have this medicinal, um, healing power. And so they would come in and they would sit in these hot springs to get healed. And so they were widely known for that. And then you had Colossea that had these really good water like it's just this fresh water everyone loved it was well known um and it was just this fabulous thing but laodicea doesn't have real good water and so they would pump in they would not pump they would use an aqueduct and bring the water into laodicea and it was lukewarm and it tasted horrible and so jesus what's interesting and i've, I've heard this um interpreted a couple of different ways but the way i've always heard it was um, that we, we need to either be on fire for God or cold, and Jesus doesn't want But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I would listen to it. He says, I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, God wants us to be on fire for him, right? We can all agree on that. Does God not want us to be on fire? I mean, does God want us to be cold? And like, No. He wants us to be with him, right? What Jesus is saying here is usefulness. Why? I want you to be useful, right? Just like the hot springs were supposed to be useful, just like the cold water was useful. He's saying, I want you to be useful, either hot or cold. Whatever your use is, that's what you need to be used for. But instead, he says, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You're not useful at all. You're disgusting. And the, word, the idea of spit there is vomit. And that's the idea is you drink this water, you want to vomit from it. And then Jesus is using these graphic words to un let them understand you need to be useful and you're not. You're just there. You're the bump on the log. You know, we can say it that way. Okay? And so he says... You say, and this is, so now he's getting into the, the, the unusefulness of this. He says, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and don't need a thing. This is because 
Laodicea, so Philadelphia and Sardis were both, the Romans came in and rebuilt both of them. But Laodicea wasn't. They were so rich that they said to the Romans, no, we'll do it ourselves. And they built their city back. And it became a, a, a thing of pride. That we are better than all these other towns because we were able to recover ourselves from the earthquake. And so it seems like this is translated into the church because Jesus is going after him. He's saying, you think you're rich? But then he says, but you do not realize. And now he's going to use some really, really go after words. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How about you, but if someone were to say, man, you are a wretched person. Man, that might hurt. You might be right, but that hurts. Right? I mean, this is pitiful. You ever have someone call you pitiful? Once. <laughs> Once. No. Um, if you got that reference, uh, you shouldn't be watching the movie. Um, but this is, so he goes after them just really... Like, this is what you are. And this, I've had people say, man, Jesus is a jerk. Like, he's just being mean. It's like, yeah, but did you read the rest? He says, come to me, buy gold from me, buy white clothes. And then we get down to this, so these things can cover you. And verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. There's a purpose why Jesus is saying this. These letters are not from some wrathful God that's standing out there going, I'm just going to take you guys out. It's from a God that says, I will take you out, but first you need to, you need to repent. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take this away from you. You need to repent. And it's because of his love. And, and um, uh, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5. When he's talking about um, husbands and wives. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and, the, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. This is what Jesus is doing through these letters. He's calling the church to this holiness. To his holiness. And we saw that at the beginning of Revelation. It was all about Jesus' holiness. And so he's calling them back to this. And so then he says, So be earnest and repent. Do it. Be truthful. Don't just repent like, Okay, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Earnestly repent here. And then this. This is probably one of the most quoted uh, scriptures in Scripture. Passages in Scripture. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now this passage is usually used when ministering to someone that doesn't believe. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. Let him in. But do you see the context of it? Who's he actually talking to? Believers. We can do this too. We can get so wrapped in just like the Philadelphia, uh, just like the Laodicea church, so wrapped into what we're doing, what we are. I want to share with you that last year was the greatest giving year that this church has ever seen in the 40 years that it was that it's been. And I don't, I'm not sharing that with you because hey, look at what it is. That came because you guys, for some reason, you thought that this ministry was worth it, and I thank you for that. But if we take that and say, look at what we've done. What have we done? Jesus, go outside. It becomes, look at what we've done. Look at us. Look at the name that we've built for ourselves. We will be Babel. Building our own tower. Saying we can make it to God. And that's exactly what's going on in Laodicea. They, they are so full of themselves. They think that they got it all. And Jesus is standing out the outside. But you know what? He's still standing out the outside. He's still knocking. He hasn't left the church. And I see this. I see churches are falling into, they're winking at sin, and so they're falling into all these different problems. They're following the world, and I can still see Jesus standing at the door. Let me in. 
Because there will be a day when he's not knocking on the door anymore. But until that day, he's knocking. He wants his children to come back to him. And so I see this not as a God saying, I'm going to beat you guys up the moment I get a chance. It's, don't wait to that moment. Repent, come back. Let me in. And he says, I'll eat with you and him with me. Now, I don't think that we can't use this with non-believers. I think we can. But we need to understand it in its original context. It's to us first. We need to make sure. Do I let... I make, I, the door's open, Jesus. Come on in. Okay? And then he puts everything into perspective. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I ever came and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus saying... You're with me. I'm with you, you're with me. Come here. This is a loving God trying to reach out to his people to make sure they get where they're supposed to be. And this is the thing, is we can easily fall into this. This is another one of those traps where we, like the Laodiceans, think, I can do this in my own strength, right? Because it's really easy to do that. And our society right now is actually pushing us in this direction, that if you go to a company and you interview that company, and most of you are retired, you know, 30 days, right? 30 days retire? Hey, good on you. Um, and so, but you go to a job and they say things like, what's your strengths, what your weaknesses are, right? The reason why is because they want to know, can you help our company and are your problems going to be a detriment to our company? Right? They want to figure that out. So if your strengths outweigh the weaknesses and you can be a better asset to the company, then they'll take you. And that's what they want. And so they want you to work in your strengths. In the church, we've started doing the same thing. We, we ask people, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Work in your strengths. And I have done that in my life. And I've realized that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to realize our weakness and to rely on Him, His strength, not our own. Because I can do a lot in my own strength. I really can. It's not always good, but I can. But you know what that does is it, it makes me God. Even though God gave me those gifts, God gave me those things, it's still I become God. Because look at what I've done. Look what I've built. Look what, you know, whatever I've whatever I've done. And yet, this is what Paul says. So in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, Paul says this, but God chose the foolish things of the world. You might have heard this first. Paul cho- uh, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I always get humbled when I read that passage because I go, God, are you calling me weak? And God goes, yeah. Because that's what you are. I'm not telling you something that's false. I'm telling you something that's true. You're weak, Jeremiah. You just don't realize it. And when I realize it, now I'm strong. And And this is what Paul says. He writes again to the Corinthian church in his second letter. At the end of chapter 12, he says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's not, I can't do this. My own strength will falter. But Christ's strength never will. And I, I shared this story earlier um, with, the, with the first service. Because it was a moment I wanted to do it in my own strength. And I almost did. So this past week on Thursday, I, I had to go to Blythe. And I was driving by myself. It was on I-10. And um, I don't know if you know this, but this little curve right here on I-10 to Blythe, they say it's one of the most dangerous little stretches of highway from, I think it's mile marker 40 to mile marker uh, 5 or somewhere in there. It's supposed to be one of the most dangerous ones in Arizona. A lot of accidents happen. Um, And so driving up, and we get around the curve, and there's just tons of... Um, big big rigs, uh, just tons of eighteen wheelers just riding down the road, and this one wants to go it over. So I'm not in a hurry. So I'm going to be the nice guy, right? Because my wife put something on the back of our vehicle that says, you know, God's love or something like that. And so now I have to be a better driver. 
I don't put those on mine. Um, so anyway, so I'm trying to be the nice guy, you know, let that guy in. And he comes over, and I'm staying about seven car lengths away, you know, because that's, I don't want to die. And so I'm watching him, and it's, the road's bad there, and so, you know, I always watch. So as he passes, you know, then I'll pass. Um, I never like to be right next to one when you're halfway through because that's dangerous. So anyway, so I'm going, and I'm about, okay, I got to do visuals. There's the, the one that's not far enough. I'm here driving. Okay, so there's the big rig on one side, seven car lengths in front of it. How much space is that? A lot? It's not that much. It's not that much, okay? Don't drive. Um, all of a sudden, on the side, I see this truck right here flashing their lights. Well, that's, I want over, right? No, no, that's not going to happen. So I just kept driving, right? So we get past the big rig, I get over. And um, I'll, I'll take this back. Um, and this guy, so I get over, this guy comes around, cuts me off. And so I... I, I, I'm in cruise control at this point. And so I tap off the cruise control because you can do that with your brakes. And then I'm, I'm looking and I'm like, what's, what's the problem? He, pulls, he goes fast and all of a sudden slams on his brakes. And I just, uh, <laughs> thank God because I didn't look. I just went over and got around. And I look at him like, what's wrong? He starts flipping me off and cussing at me. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. And so I pull, you know, back into the slow lane. He comes up behind me, barely misses the front, comes back over, and I'm just like, in, and at that point, stop the recording real fast. At that point, I, if I was going the other way with my gun, <laughs> you know, it's just I felt like I want to take this guy out because he almost tried to kill me. And... It would have been me, it would have been the big rig behind me and the big rig behind him because everyone's so close at that point. I'm thinking, this guy is a jerk. And I held on to that rage for this person for the last few days, and I have not been the, the nicest person to people because of that. I tried. My wife's back there. <laughs> All true. Um, and so this morning, I'm, you know, just praying. God says, you got to let that stuff go. There's, no, there's nothing you can do. That person's gone. Unless you're here. <laughs> you know, and he's just like, you got to let that go. Don't worry about that. You want to f- be angry in your own power so that you... So you can deal with something that won't ever be dealt with. You need to give that up. I'm like, but I like the feeling. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Jeremiah. You got to give it up. You do. And so it's one of the hardest things to give something up to God because then it's, I, but I want it. My, my kids watch this movie called Over the Hedge and there's this little squirrel and at the very beginning, he gets this cookie, and they throw the cookie, and he goes, but I like the cookie. <laughs> and every time I, hold, I go to follow sin, that thought crosses, but I like the sin. <laughs> you know, but Jesus says, I have a better way. I am the gate. I have the new Jerusalem. You know, I will make you a pillar. Don't go after that stuff. Don't rely on yourself. Don't, none of that. And so my challenge for you this week is this. this I, I only challenge you guys to do things that I'm willing to do myself. Okay? So if it's really weird, I had to do that. Okay? So don't think I'm just making it. But this, I think, is pretty simple. We need to go before God this week and just confess. Confess our weakness. If we're holding God outside, confess. God, come in. I want, I, I want this. I want to eat with you. I want to be with you. And to confess, that, but I'm dealing with this, Lord, and I'm trying to hold on to it. Lord, don't let me do it. You know? And then praise Him. 
Because I don't think that any time we go before God, we should not be praising. We actually went through this in Matthew uh, 6, where we went through the uh, Lord's Prayer. And it's all about there's praise and there's um, asking. And, you know, so it's praise has to be a part of our interaction with God. And then finally, we need to seek his strength. God, okay, maybe we know something, right? I know I'm going to be going into this situation. I know, you know, when the vendors were here, I know I'm going to go out there. There's going to be a lot of people. I'm going to be annoyed. Lord, help me, right? It's God, give me the strength. Not my strength, but your strength. Work through my weakness to glorify yourself. And so we're going to do communion right now. This is another little um, reaction. I always, I always like doing communion after, after we go through the word. And the reason why is this. is because this is a time for us to respond back to God in the moment that we're here together. As a, as a church, as a people, as, as a people of God. Because we come from a lot of different backgrounds. I know there's people that are Methodists here. There are people that are Presbyterians. There are people that are, um, you know, Baptists. Um, yeah. We, we come, yeah, they're in the back. <laughs> um, but we come from different denominations. But we are the church of God. We are his children. And so it's, it's a moment for the church to come before their Savior, before their King, and just to worship through what He has called us to, to do this in the remembrance. And so if I could have the guys come up, um, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll do communion. So, Heavenly Father, we just praise You. You are great, You are glorious, You are enthroned in majesty. And so, Lord, we praise You. Jesus, we thank You because You, you paid the price to allow us into this worship of the Father and the worship of the Son and and Lord we thank you and the Holy Spirit you have empowered us. You were sent by the Father and Son to to live in us and to guide us into all righteousness and so Lord we praise you for that. And Lord you give us the opportunity to commune with you in a way that no other creation can. And so Lord we thank you. Thank you for this time in the Word. Thank you for the fellowship we have. Thank you that we get to practice what you've called us into through the elements. And so, Lord, we just thank you. And as we take this communion, Lord, meet us in it, that we may know you deeper, and that we would rely on your strength and not our own. So in all things, you are glorified, and we get to experience your glory. So, Lord, we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.